We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the FDA officially approves the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and more on values, virtues, and vacuums and how that giant sucking sound you hear in the White House is proof that vacuums are always filled. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. Today's topic is going to be a little bit more detail on yesterday's, where I discussed the issue of vacuums and how the vacuum that's being filled in Afghanistan right now is something that we should have been able to predict. And in fact, Dinesh D'Souza predicted it oh, let's just say 15 years ago, when he was a scholar in residence at the Hoover Institute in Stanford University. So I'm going to circle back and discuss that, discuss his article that he wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I think it was 2005 or thereabout. I may be off a year or two, but that doesn't matter. We're going to go back and dig into his argument a little bit more deeply. And his argument is basically this that the Muslim rage and Islamic fundamentalism is not what everybody tells us. It's not a reaction against Christianity. It's a reaction against secular immorality. And that if we would hold true to our Christian principles, that even Muslim leaders have admitted that their battle would be very different than what it is right now. And D'Souza actually cites those leaders and quotes some of the infamous Islamic radicals actually saying exactly that. But before I get into that, I want to deal with the most uh, immediate news, and that is the FDA's approval of the Pfizer vaccine. Does this approval change the discussion, change the conclusion, change how you feel, how I feel, and what we should do or be forced to do when it comes to COVID-19 vaccinations. Has anything changed as the result of FDA approval? So I'm going to deal with that first. So today's kind of a grab a bag. And the two topics I'm going to grab out of the bag are Afghanistan and the FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine. Let's take an early break, acknowledge our sponsors, and when I get back, we'll discuss these two topics. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome back to The Rebellion. By the way, if you'd like to subscribe, if you're a new listener, if you've come on board over the last couple weeks, I haven't done a lot of pushing of the Patreon subscription option, so I've tried to circle back and do that a little bit more in the last few episodes of The Rebellion. I'm going to do it again very quickly right now. If you'd like to subscribe to The Rebellion, I obviously encourage you to do so by going to patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. That's patreon.com backslash 
D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. I know that many of you get weary of me uh, saying that over and over again on every show, so I've tried not to do so over the course of the last several weeks. I think I've successfully avoided that, so don't get too frustrated if I've hit it a couple times over the last couple days. Enough of that. So let's get to today's topic. The Pfizer vaccine has been approved by the FDA. Does that change anything? Does that change what I said? Does it change my opinion? I don't know, it may change yours, but one of the most popular episodes I've ever aired of The Rebellion was on this vaccine issue. And I started out that episode by saying, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't want to pretend to be one. Therefore, I've tried to keep my mouth shut when it comes to this whole issue of vaccinations because I don't have the expertise to know all of the answers on this particular issue and at this particular debate. I frankly don't know whether or not the thing is safe. I frankly don't know whether or not I should take the vaccine or not take the vaccine. I don't know a lot about medicine because I don't have a degree in medicine. I don't have any expertise or experience in medicine. There are medical doctors out there. There are nurses out there. There are nurse practitioners out there. There are other scientists out there that understand a heck of a lot more about this whole thing than I do, and I've tried to defer to them and ask their opinion. Now, you and I both know that there's a, there's a continuum of opinions out there and views out there within the medical profession as to whether or not you should get vaccinated or you should not get vaccinated. Is this thing something that's safe and effective or is it not? And some doctors say it is, and some doctors say it's not. So we've been left as a consuming public to try to figure out what to do. And frankly, if the thing's effective, if it's as effective as, let's say, the polio vaccine or smallpox vaccinations, then I'd be the first one to say, go get vaccinated. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. In other words, I think vaccinations have had their place. I think a lot of people would still be getting polio if it weren't for that. Smallpox would be killing a lot of people right now if it weren't for that blessing. God's provenient grace, his sovereign grace, his common grace by giving people the wisdom to dig deeper into his creation and understand that you can protect millions of people from polio and smallpox by vaccinating them. Okay, so I get all of that. I know enough about medicine to at least say what I just said, and I'll defend that one. I know that there are some debates out there as to whether or not vaccines cause autism and whatnot, and I think those things should be looked into also. I've talked to a lot of people that are very suspicious of a lot of vaccines because they believe that there's a correlation between those vaccinations and higher rates of autism in the United States than other countries, for example. I get all that. But all that said, you're a thoughtful person. You have a head on your shoulders. You can think and ask good questions, and so can I. So when it comes to the vaccine debate, you know where I am. I mentioned it last week. What I am most concerned about is, by definition, the thing is still experimental. And I said that over and over again. 
whether it be Pfizer or Moderna or even some of the other vaccinations, vaccines, they, by definition, are still experimental because the FDA has not approved them, or at least that was the case until today. Now, Pfizer is now approved by the FDA. So are those of you listening out there right now going to say, well, Piper, uh, it's not experimental anymore, so you can't make that argument. Well, not so fast. Here's why. By definition, every vaccine that's out there right now, every one of them, every COVID-19 shot treatment that's out there right now, I shouldn't say treatment, that's not true, because some of the treatments like ivermectin, um, hydroxychloroquine, etc., those have been around for a long time, and there is longitudinal data out there to tell you whether or not they are effective. You can study those things for multiple years longitudinally, and you can collect data over a long period of time. That's what longitudinal means. And you can see what that data says. Do you see a disproportionate number of people getting, oh, let's say, cancer or leukemia or acquiring diabetes or migraine headaches? Are there side effects out there? Are there side effects out there, disproportionate numbers of people getting other diseases as the result of getting this vaccine? Well, in the case of a lot of other things, a lot of other drugs that are out there, you can answer that question because they've been around for five years, 10 years, 15, some cases 20, 25, 30 years or more. And therefore you can track those particular drugs, their effectiveness, ineffectiveness, and their side effects or lack thereof. You can answer the question, well, a certain percentage of people do suffer migraines as the result of taking this particular drug or getting this particular shot. Now, the percentage is very small, and therefore your doctor will say, well, your odds of getting that particular side effect or that disease are very, very rare, and therefore I still, as your doctor, recommend that you go get that treatment or get that shot or take that pill. And then you as a consumer have the right to make the decision as to whether or not you want to take that risk, minimal though it may be, because you are weighing the benefit and risk ratio. You're calculating this thing, and you think the benefits, the potential benefits, far outweigh the negatives, right? Well, let's go to the COVID-19 vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine in particular, because the FDA has now approved it. So a lot of people are saying, well, your argument that it's experimental is null and void. It's not experimental any longer because the FDA just said it's not, that it's approved. But wait a second, you know where I'm going with this probably. Longitudinally, approved by the FDA or not, it's still experimental because you cannot, by definition, know what the long-term effects of the shot will be. You can't. How many of you out there right now will raise your hand and say, whoa, 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 I do know what the long-term effects of Pfizer's COVID-19 shot are 24 months out. Can you say that? The answer is, by definition, no, because it hasn't been around that long you can't know 24 months out, 36 months out, 48 months out. You don't know. It, it may not be bad news 
it may not be good news. You don't know what the longitudinal data is because it hasn't been around long enough to calculate that data. You get my point? So for me, the FDA approving this thing means very little. I was going to say nothing, but that's not fair. It means very little because nothing in this FDA approval answers the question of longitudinal research and what happens to a human being 12 months out, 24 months out, 36 months out, 48 months out. What happens to a human being as the result of taking this drug? We don't know. What happens to their child, their fetus? Is there any effect on fertility? Some people say, oh, that's tinfoil hat stuff. That's conspiracy stuff. There's no evidence whatsoever that it affects fertility. Well, there's no evidence that it doesn't either. At least there's limited evidence because it hasn't been around long enough. And does it cause birth defects? We don't know. We can't study the data long enough because the data hasn't been there long enough. All right, I'm beating that horse to death, but you get my point. So when it comes to vaccines, I still think we have the right and the responsibility to ask good questions, even if you're not a medical doctor. And in fact, we've been trained to do that. We've been told to go get a second opinion, right? We've been told to not just go blindly into the drugstore and buy stuff just because. We've been told to read the labels. We've been told to listen to the disclaimers. And we know that the medical profession is not a perfect science because you see the commercials all the time about if you took this drug or if you used this product, then there's a lawsuit being filed right now on your behalf and you can jump on board and maybe become a multimillionaire overnight because that drug or that procedure or that product compromised your health or killed one of your relatives. We know that stuff happens. I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. And I still want to say it one more time. If you have a comorbidity like age, diabetes, cancer, if you have a comorbidity, you're overweight, and you think that you're safer getting vaccinated rather than taking the risk that you might get COVID with with that comorbidity in play, and therefore you're at greater risk because the data does show that people with these comorbidities are at greater risk. We know that young children are almost at zero risk, and the elementary school age and even teenagers are at such minimal risk. All of this hysteria about what we're doing in our schools is just crazy. We know that the risk to young people is inconsequential in great measure. But we know that the risk is higher for other subpopulations. Like I said, age, obesity, diabetes, leukemia, cancer. Now, if you're in those 
comorbidity groups and you want to get vaccinated, more power to you. Bless you. Go do so. I don't criticize you. I have no right to criticize you. If you're a frontline nurse and you don't have any comorbidities, but you just don't, your research shows you think that getting vaccinated is a good thing because you're exposed to people day in and day out that could compromise your health. And that's your choice. I don't criticize you. In fact, I would be wrong to do so because you've got more information and you've got more skin in the game than I do. But don't turn around and tell me that I have to start taking a drug that by definition has not been studied long term. That's where I stand on this. All right. Vaccines. Enough of that, I guess. Don't we get sick and tired of this? Don't you just want that whole conversation to go away? Well, let's go on to some other V words. Okay, we've been on vaccines. Let's talk about values, virtues, and vacuums. I talked to you yesterday about my whole uh, satirical opinion piece that I wrote for the Washington Times, where I basically wrote it from the perspective of the Taliban and told Ned Price and the State Department, and by default, Joe Biden and the Democrats, that they have no business whatsoever telling the Taliban and people of Afghanistan what kind of government that they should now develop and now embrace and employ, uh, one that's humanitarian and honors the dignity of women and girls. The language that Ned Price used when he stuttered and stammered over his own words like a scared little boy in the corner in his press conference. Now, why did I say that? It's because how dare we tell them? (laughs) How dare we? When I say that, I mean the progressive left. I think America still has moral, uh, uh, moral footing to stand on. At least 50% of us do because we ground our ideas and we ground our arguments in a biblical worldview and a constitution, declaration of independence, a bill of rights, those self-evident truths that are given to us by God and not stolen from us by government. Uh, we have moral footing to engage in this discussion, but the Democrats do not, the progressives do not, because how, how can you tell people to honor the dignity of women and girls when you take the identity of those same women and girls away through your own policies here? So you got my point. So back to Dinesh D'Souza's argument. He, he argued back, I think it was 2005 or thereabout, when he was the Rishwain Research Scholar at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. And he contended then that the best explanation for what was called Muslim rage uh, that was directed toward the West from 9-11 on forward was not what many people were claiming that it was. It wasn't this clash of religions, i.e. Islam versus Christianity. No, D'Souza said this. He believed that Islam's rage is not directed toward true Christianity, but instead toward radical secularism and the moral vacuity that faithful Muslims see in the way we live our lives in the West. Here's part of what he said in his article, and I need to be quick here. It's time to revisit some of the common assumptions, said D'Souza. Many Americans consider Islamic fundamentalists and Christians as being essentially equivalents, kindred spirits, uh, the same fundamentalist impulse uh, existing within both Christianity and Islam. Um, He argues that that is baloney. 
And I agree with him. First of all, the same fundamentalist impulse does not course through the veins of both Muslims and Christians. And that's just a straw man to the maximum by the progressive left when they report accordingly. Well, D'Souza goes on and says this. Not only is this diagnosis of the problem wrong, but the solution proposed are actually fueling the Muslim rage and making future terrorist attacks all that much more likely. And here we are some 15, 16 years later, and he's absolutely right. He says this, the reason is that from the point of view of Muslims, America is not hated because it's Christian. Rather, America is hated because it's secular. You get that? That's D'Souza's argument. So by promoting radical secularism, LGBTQIA, BLM, critical race theory, and all the morally vacuous nonsense that we push through our schools and through our culture right now, we are basically corroborating the charge of the radical Muslims that we are their enemies. We are the enemies of their religion because of our immorality. D'Souza concludes by saying this, Radical Islam makes its case against America and the West not on the grounds that our cultures are Christian, but on the grounds that we have abandoned Christianity. We aren't faulted in America for being Christian, but for not being Christian enough, says D'Souza. He goes on, he says, many years earlier, there was one of the proponents of radical Islam, Saeed Qutb, made the same point. He made this point about the modern era, and he says religious convictions are no more than a matter of antiquarian interests. He was making the point, he was quoting the secularists when he said that, that your religious convictions, the modern era, your religious convictions seem to be no more than a matter of antiquarian interests. But his discomfort with that, I think, is obvious now. He, it's not outdated ideas. It's not just a matter of antiquarian interests. That's not what a, the radical Muslims believe. They believe in their religion. And they mock us because we don't believe in anything other than ourselves and our own material comfort. So they rage against our immorality. They rage against our materialism. They rage against our whateverism. They rage against the morally vacuous nature of the West and America in particular because we lead the West. So D'Souza concludes this. Thus, the popular notion that the war against terrorism is a battle of two opposed forms of religious fundamentalism is false, he says. This is not why Islamic radicals are fighting against America. From their perspective, the war is between Muslim-led forces of monotheism and morality versus American-led forces of atheism and immorality. Secularism, not Christianity, is responsible for producing a blowback of Muslim rage. Close quote. Now, I agree with a lot of what Dinesh D'Souza says and writes politically. And I agree with 85, 90% or so of what he just said. I think he kind of sidesteps the huge difference between 
the Muslim faith and Christian faith when it comes to the Muslim doctrine of abrogation, for example, and the doctrine of deception. And those are two very explicit, explicit doctrines within Orthodox Islam, where the doctrine of abrogation means that the later verses abrogate the earlier verses, and it's the later verses in the Quran that are the violent verses, and it's the earlier verses that are the peaceful verses. So the later ones, the violent ones, trump the earlier ones, and therefore the doctrine of abrogation within Muslim hermeneutics actually makes violence okay, because the more recent verses are the ones you take to the bank and if they conflict with the earlier ones in the Quran, then you go with the new ones. You go with the more recent ones, the doctrine of abrogation. And then there's the doctrine of deception in Islam, where it's okay to lie. It's okay to do deceitful things because God himself can be deceitful and can be a liar. Now, those are very different things than the hermeneutic of Orthodox Christianity. But I don't want to get distracted with all that right now. Let's just deal with the basic argument that D'Souza brings to the table, and that is the principle of the vacuum. That, oh, how should I say it, that unavoidable law that you you just know and experience on a day-by-day basis. It's that rule of replacement, if you will. That rule that says that nothingness will always draw something into its void. You know this. Think about it. Think about history. Time and time again, the absence of good always leads to the manifestation of evil. I'm going to say it again. The absence of good always leads to the manifestation of evil. So this Islamic hatred is being drawn irresistibly into your own backyard by a vacuum. A vacuum of what? A vacuum of virtues, a vacuum of values. If you have none, If you have no objective truths any longer, that void of truth, that vacuum is going to draw lies into that vacuum. If you have no biblical love, you're going to draw hatred into that vacuum. That's what you see in critical theory. That's what you see in BLM. That's what you see in the streets of Portland and Seattle. You see hatred because there's a vacuum of biblical love. The emptiness of secularism is always going to draw something into that vacuum to replace it. And what you're seeing right now is you're seeing Islam, radical Islam, and that sucking sound you hear in Afghanistan right now is the result of the United States not providing any moral leadership anymore. And therefore, somebody else is going to take the lead. And it it's not very pretty, is it? Another bit of evidence of the value of a biblical worldview and that in times of universal deceit, truth is your only fallback position. It's the only place for you to go. Truth is the only rebellion left because without truth, there's a vacuum and you're going to have vice and violence if you don't have virtue. I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion.